on the Middle East, our Monitor's podcast exploring the week's big stories. My name is Ambrun Zaman and I'll be hosting Jalal Harshawi, a Paris-based analyst who closely follows the Maghreb. I'll be talking to Jalal about Libya, where critical elections that were meant to be held this past Friday were cancelled. The oil-rich North African nation has been racked by violence since the overthrow of its strongman Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. The elections were meant to pave the way for political stability and national reconciliation following an October 2020 ceasefire struck between warring factions backed by Turkey and Qatar on the one hand and the UAE, Egypt and Russia on the other. So what does the postponement mean for Libya? Welcome to our show, Jalal. It's great to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So can you briefly sum up for our listeners why the elections in Libya were postponed? Well, I think one way to summarize it would be to say that all meaningful factions uh, behaved uh, with a very small amount of uh, good faith. I would say that uh, when this uh, project became public, and that was uh, in the fall of 2020, I think the initial reaction of any ambitious politician or leader in Libya was to instrumentalize this um, priority uh, that basically was perceived as a, as a Western priority. As it was perceived as a something that was strongly suggested by uh, the UN, not to say the US. And uh, a lot of Libyan, I'm talking about the elites really, uh, basically went, how could I possibly take advantage of this rhetoric that is probably going to dominate the entire political scene for the next year? Uh, I will do everything to sabotage it. And at the same time, trying to find ways to accuse the other guy for having uh, done a poor job preparing the elections. And that was basically, I think, uh, an almost a universal uh, behavior on the part of uh, the, all the key players. And you also have to kind of keep in mind that a lot of the potential candidates also occupied very key positions. Uh, so there was a bunch of conflict of interests uh, that kind of created a lot of problems. And I would say that even now, now that the deadline has been missed, I think a lot of those problems will remain. So can I just jump in with a, another question? You mentioned the candidates and the you know, foreign powers who seem to have so much more agency, sadly, than the Libyan people themselves. Could you just run us through who those main foreign powers are who seem to have so much sway over Libya and who these candidates, particularly the more controversial ones, are and how that sort of also complicated things. Well, actually, I would like to push back on this uh, a little bit. I think uh, 2021 has been uh, quiet on the international level. And I think a lot of the the actions that actually mattered in 2021 in Libya were Libyan actions. Um, you know, a lot of the sophisticated ideas and strategies and tactics that were implemented were from uh, Libyan actors, uh, not necessarily determined by uh, foreign states. Um, I'm not saying that the foreign states are out of the picture, 
And I think they they matter, they matter still, and they will become much more visible again, I think, uh, within the next several months. I mean, the usual players are, the usual suspects are meant were effectively Turkey. Uh, Turkey is entrenched militarily in the northwestern part of, uh, of the country. It has been uh, for two years now or more, and uh, Turkey doesn't want to leave. Um, and uh, the prime minister uh, that emerged in uh, February, March of this year, happens to be someone who's uh, personally very, very close to President Erdogan. I'm talking about Prime Minister Abdelhamid Dabeba. Uh, another way of saying the same thing would be to say that effectively that Turkey cannot dream of a, of a closer, more convenient leader for, for, for Libya. Uh, so Turkey doesn't want successful elections and it doesn't want any change. It wants the status quo. Um, and then on the other side, you have effectively uh, the Emirates. The Emirates has been much quieter uh, over the last year or so. Uh, it doesn't mean that it ceased uh, all of its activities, uh, especially when it comes to political coordination and, and you know, uh, an ability to kind of um, invest on multiple tracks in terms of the various Libyan actors, depending on the province, and and kind of plan the right seeds so as to become to be able to become more active again in the future if it needs if it needs to be. Uh, and uh, the Emirates, you know, although we saw all those pictures of, you know, the cordial meeting between uh, Mohammed bin Zayed and uh, uh, Rashid uh, uh, Tayyip Erdogan uh, a few weeks ago, those uh, antagonisms that have to do with ideology have not been resolved. And the Emirates uh, continues to be uh, deeply opposed to political Islam. Any, any kind of pluralistic uh, arrangement that would leave a little bit of room for, for those kind of currents. But, and then you have um, Russia. The UAE's, yeah. I'm sorry to jump in, but the UAE's sort of guy in Libya, Haftar, really suffered a big blow, didn't he, because of Turkey's intervention. Um, so who, who are the credible actors on, you know, on the other side uh, that, that the UAE can back in the hope of well, balancing this Turkish influence in Debeba, as you described yeah. it. Well, for example, if you go to the into the reality of the Libyan capital, and, and the Libyan capital is out of reach now from, from Haftar's perspective, you have a militia that was put together of the last year under the nose of Turkey. And it was put together by a militia leader that is known for his close relationship with uh, Abu Dhabi. And I'm talking about Haydn Tajouri. He's someone who kind of disappeared uh, from the scene during the, the big war for Tripoli, and then uh, returned in uh, late 2020, during the, the, the autumn of uh, 2020. And, you know, in a, in a way that was almost like visible in real time, was able to kind of purchase weapons and uh, bribe some, uh, all members of his former militia and kind of put together a new brigade called the 777. And this happened inside the capital. And when you have something like this that happens, obviously with a direct connection with the UAE, uh, you know, this brigade is not disconnected from the rest of, of Tripoli. You have other militias that are opposed to the Beba, opposed to Turkey, opposed to political Islam. And to see this guy make his comeback is a source of inspiration. It's also a source of uh, 
uh, material means and potentially money. So you Is have he like getting this, any uh, help from the Egyptians or the Russians? No, no, it's more like of a, an Emirati initiative. Uh, mm -hmm. And you have other players. You have other players. You have like also some, you know, very strong politicians who are now part of the Debeba government who actually helped him uh, be designated uh, in, in February. And those I'm talking about like this, uh, these two brothers by the name of uh, Mlukta, those businessmen, uh, former militia leaders, uh, more senior than, uh, than the guy that I just mentioned. Are also linked uh, to the UAE, and and they uh, somehow played a key role uh, in the uh, Geneva designation process in February for the Biba to reach power. So you see, you have this diversification of risk approach. Uh, you have a multiple track kind of uh, methodology followed by the Emirates, and uh, all these things could be reactivated when when needed. So, I, I you know I don't think anybody should walk away with the, the impression that the UAE just has all of its eggs in uh, in the Haftar basket. Haftar is still very important symbolically. Uh, he's very recognizable. He's still, you know, trying to be charismatic, and he's very powerful in the in the eastern half of of Libya. But you need people on the ground in the west to to make headway. And, uh, and the UAE has certainly not stopped being active on that front. So why does um, the UAE care so much about Libya? It cares so much because Libya is a very wealthy country uh, and uh, wealth matters when you care about ideology because uh, when you have this small population of less than 7 million, a beautiful location, incredible natural resources in terms of you know, reserves of oil and iron and, and, and platinum and, and all kinds of other um, um, natural resources, then it means that any ideology can succeed if you live it in peace, if you just, you know, are not active enough, if you don't view it as a priority, you're going to wake up one day and then uh, you'll have, you know, something like political Islam playing a key role in Tripoli, this prestigious uh, North African capital. And people, I'm talking about other factions in Sudan and Egypt and Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, everywhere, will draw the conclusion that political Islam is okay, that you can succeed, you can become prosperous, you can be uh, at the top of a peaceful society that kind of shines. If you, that, if you have that happen as a, as a showcase for the wrong ideology, then you'll have a contagion that will probably uh, no, you, you have into... to admit that the Islamists themselves have been doing a pretty good job of discrediting themselves, as we've seen in Turkey, where the economy is kind of collapsing along with the True. rule of law and the rest True. of it. I mean, the, the, and Turkey's the, 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 the... and then in Tunisia, too, where you saw um, the Islamist party sort of basically kicked out, um, albeit True. True. through uh, auto golpe, as they call yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot. That's absolutely true. But I would say that those examples that you correctly mentioned are rather recent. And what I've been trying to describe is a constant uh, philosophy that has been followed by the UAE for more than 10 years. And, uh, and I think if I were them, I would do exactly the same. I would do everything to, uh, to prevent, um, you know, a scenario where 
um, you know, any kind of political party could uh, take advantage of, a, of an easy situation like uh, Libya in a context of peace. So you do not want to leave it to chance. You cannot just say, I'm going to leave them alone. Maybe they will succeed or maybe they will shoot themselves in the foot. You are going to interfere and, and do basically what the U.S. did in Latin America and other uh, conflicts where you intervene but, but it seems like it's ideology. a bit of a stalemate all the same even though you say this other new this guy to jury has sort of regained a foothold in in Tripoli the fact yeah, remains yeah. that the Turks are very much there still uh, with their troops and I guess with their mercenaries though I'm not sure have they gone back to Syria no no there's still more than 3,500 mercenaries backed by Turkey and, and Northwestern Libya. Uh, look, 2021 has been a stalemate, uh, but I think it is wrong to conclude from there that 2022 will look the same. I think one novelty in 2022, quite possibly, I might be wrong, but I think Turkey will have to fight in the new year to stay in Northwestern Libya. That, that is a, a big step back compared to the easy ride that they've had over the last year. So if they end up having to kill Libyans just to stay, it means that it's potentially the beginning of the end. And that's the feeling that I get right now. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't extrapolate based on 2021 and say that Turkey is out of the woods, everything is static, they're gonna stay forever. That's not true. There's a lot of factions that are very well organized that dislike Turkey, that dislike more importantly, the Libyan friends of Turkey, people that are making a comeback, that continue strengthening simply because of this um, uh, security umbrella that has been in place. But so let's try to imagine 2022, and I imagine it being more difficult for Ankara. And, and where do you place Gaddafi's son, since we were talking about the presidential contenders and how controversial some of them are, uh, where do you put place him in all of this because his uh, candidacy did create quite a stir and of course yeah. was yet uh, and the fact that he's gotten that far even having been convicted of war crimes is a, a, again a reminder of how far we've regressed uh, you know writ large in this Arab Spring experiment with people hankering after the quote-unquote good old days of dictators that were at least stable and predictable. Yeah I mean I mean, Saif definitely utilized this context of uh, elections, elections, you know, this obsession about elections. Uh, what does it mean when you speak of uh, free and fair elections? It means liberal democracy, right? And uh, liberal democracy is basically the ideology that is preferred by Washington and its Western allies. And, and those states uh, effectively intervene militarily to help destroy uh, the Muammar Gaddafi system. So this year, what we saw is basically his son stage a comeback, stage a media comeback. And I really insist on this. You know, it hasn't been a security or military or even a political comeback. It's not very well organized. What He has existed um, in the media, in social media, in the form of clicks, you know, a lot of likes, you know. There's uh, even like revolutionary Libyans that I know who admit and when you talk to them that if they had seen him on a, on a ballot, especially within the context of a second round for the presidential, they would have voted for him, they say. But, um, but the elections are not happening. And, uh, and so you don't on the think ground, they're going to happen at all and we're going to be I, stuck? I think, I think we should continue being very alert and be, uh, we should be aware 
of the strong possibility, in my analysis, that uh, you know we'll be having a similar conversation in December, twenty twenty-two. It's very possible. And you think the entire... that this transitional government uh, can survive till then? And as you no, mentioned, Weber is a rather controversial figure, certainly not an impartial one to be able to continue in this role, particularly given that he also presented himself as a candidate when apparently he wasn't supposed to. Um, right now, you have uh, this the enemies thing of the about Labour. the British ambassador, you know, supporting him. Um, wh wh where does this all lead? Well, first of all, uh, I think what the British tweet indicates is more of a clumsy move by uh, by the diplomatic team responsible for Libya on the part of the of the Brits. But uh, I don't want anybody to think that uh, the Brits are the only ones who have this preference of saying, you know, why don't we keep the Beba until elections are organized? You know, uh, it's, they're not the only ones. So you have the Italians, you have even states that dislike political Islam that are tempted with, the, with this option of kind of helping maintain the Beba until elections are uh, happen. Uh, I'm including France, I'm including Russia, I'm, looking, I'm including a lot of people. But the Biba does have, of course, uh, a lot of enemies amongst Libyan elites. He's quite popular with the population, with the public. But in terms of the Libyan elites, there are a lot of people who hate him and they would love to dislodge him. They would love to topple him. But uh, what I see right now is that they, they're not really you know, thinking of using elections to, dis to, to topple him. They would like to just topple him or weaken him or, or exert pressure until he crumbles sometime, you know, in the, in the near future. So it's not necessarily an electoral, I'm sorry? You mean through violence? Potentially through violence, yeah. Potentially through violence, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's the reason I mentioned, I was mentioning the, the militias uh, right. that exist in Tripoli that are, uh, that are happy to use at least the deterrence of, of violence to kind of pressure him. And when you when you play those kinds of games, then you could easily slip into a, a, a form of conflict. So I mean, then potentially, if if as you describe things, we have Turkish forces fighting UAE-backed forces in the Libyan capital. Um, yeah, that would have. Well, you see that the, the problem. Yeah, I think it would portend a broader conflict again. I could yeah. Presume. Absolutely, yeah, you're, you're raising multiple very good points here. It, it is true that if Tripoli becomes this huge question mark, then necessarily this, this acute crisis within the capital itself will reopen all kinds of wounds elsewhere in, in the country and it will invite uh, you know, a return of violence in, on other fronts. It's and true. what can be done to stop that? What can the United States do? Does Russia want to stop it? And the EU obviously does because of, first of all, for very selfish reasons, right? They don't want more Libyans, more immigrants uh, using uh, Libya as a sort of launching pad. Well, you know, Europe. regarding Europe, I mean, this correlation between Libyans killing each other and uh, resurgence in uh, migrant statistics. This correlation was not true at all during the, the big war for Tripoli, the 14 months be between April 2019 and, and June 2020. And from there, uh, European decision makers in Brussels no longer 
deduce that you have to kind of av uh, avoid conflict in Libya just because you care about migrants. There's no correlation, apparently. Uh, for example, the 2021 has been quiet between Libyans and it has seen uh, a rise in the number of irregular arrivals in, in Italy. Um, so unfortunately, the correlation doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. And, uh, and as a result, you don't have this kind of uh, false humanitarian concern on the part of, uh, of Brussels decision makers for, for, for Libyans when it comes to the conflict between themselves just because the, because the Europeans are selfish. It doesn't work. But, but in terms of Turkey, you said that Turkey would, might, might use its uh, military presence. It is a difficult thing for, for Turkey to do because Turkey uh, is, is quite present through, through its own 700 or 800 officers. It's drones. It has a fleet of at least 20 drones in Tripolitania. And it has, you know, the Syrian mercenaries. Um, but can it use those assets to stop killing Libyans? You know, this is a very difficult uh, line to cross, you know. Uh, right oh, now, it's kind of standing... I agree with you. And besides, again, going back to my previous question, would the United States not intervene in some way to prevent that from happening? Well, you know, we saw a very ugly war, uh, again, for Tripoli, and, and the U.S. did certainly not intervene. The way it intervened was indirectly by well, no, kind I mean, of giving the green light to Turkey for, for, for it to kind of, you know, uh, offset the presence of, of Russia and the UAE. That's how it kind of uh, brought about a form of peace. So this idea of, of a direct intervention of the United States. I don't mean militarily, I, I, but through diplomacy and a mix of, you know, carrots and sticks, sanctions, that sort of thing, threat to off or whatever. I don't know. You know um, what I've learned about? about uh, the Americans when it comes to Libya is they are very ambivalent. You know, it's not considered a very high, uh, a very important uh, file in, in Washington. Mm -hmm. So the people who manage it day to day kind of are always, um, uh, they're never decisive. You know, they're always playing with like, there's always a disconnect between the rhetoric and the day to day behavior of those decision makers. Plus and, they're uh, very distracted by their own problems at home, not to mention yeah. this big crisis in the Ukraine, so. Yeah, um, so right now I think there's a temp temptation to kind of like surf and navigate from short-term crisis to short-term crisis. Um, you know, I think, I, I don't think we should expect clarity uh, on the part of the uh, It sounds depressing to be honest, but um, just, so to, uh, just so we can help our listeners understand a bit how things work. I mean, in the meantime, people have to survive to live. And as you said, Libya has enormous uh, oil and gas wealth. How does that get produced, sold, and how do how does the income get shared among all these sort of um, adv adversaries who who run the place? Uh, good question. Uh, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about the Beba. There's another characteristic of the Beba as as a, as a prime minister. For the first time, you have a head of state, because that's what he is, a head of state that benefits from a very, very close alliance with the governor of the central bank. And the governor of the central bank is, to me, the most powerful man in, in Libya. Uh, the reason is because he holds the, the purse strings. So I'm referring to the amount of dollars that are generated from the extraction, the extraction of oil. Uh, Libya produces 
you know, somewhere between, you know, 750,000 and 1.3 million um, barrels a day. And that, to give you an idea, generates something around, you know, 22, $23 billion a year at the current prices. And all of it is spent. Everything is spent. It's spent mostly in uh, the form of civil servant salaries and, uh, and in terms of food. Uh, very little goes to infrastructure, although the Beba tries to spend more than usual uh, in, in projects and reconstruction efforts. Um, so right now, I mean, inflation is kind of painful, but not too painful. Prices are more or less stable. Access to dollars, which is crucial to import stuff from outside, is kind of smooth because of this alliance, the political alliance between the governor of the central bank and the prime minister. So things have been relatively okay under the. But, is it, but aren't the ports uh, controlled by Haftar? The ports through which the oil is. Yeah, but Haftar Haftar had to uh, abandon his blockade in September 2020. Right. Uh, he might be playing with the idea of uh, reintroducing the, uh, the same kind of ploy, you know, this idea of blocking, blockading the oil exports in 2022. It's definitely something that could happen, but it hasn't happened over the last um, year or 15 months. So, um, you know, he has just two, like, two modes, right? He either blocks, blocks everything he lets things uh, flow and then tries to get money from Tripoli. And Tripoli has been sending money to, to Haftar. You should not imagine that he is like completely being strangled. You know, Tripoli, the Tripoli of the Beba has been quite nice with, with Haftar. The reason he's still, you know, putting together these intrigues, uh, you know, that consist in hurting the Beba is simply because you have the same mentality of, of a maximalist victory that is constantly uh, sought after by most players, not just Haftar, Haftar and everybody else. But uh, there's been a form of modus vivandi uh, that has prevailed uh, during, during the last year. So a mixed picture. Well, Jalal, thank yeah. you so much for being with us today. That was super interesting, um, slightly scary. Um, let's hope that, you know, things somehow miraculously improve in the new year. Thank you. Thank you, Jalal. Thank you very much. I hope it's uh, useful. Thank you very much for your trust. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode on the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed it. And we look forward to being with you again in the new year. Have a fantastic, fantastic holiday. 